just give you one more reminder. February 8th, uh, as it stands right now, second Saturday of the month, 7.30 in the morning, men's prayer breakfast. We've had a couple. We've had wonderful attendance from uh, many of you. We hope to have more of you. Uh, we're getting a chance to put together a little food and fellowship early on a Saturday morning. We're not here real long. We hear something from the Word. We share some prayer requests. We uh, pray together. And uh, as simple as that is, God's using that to work in our hearts, to bind us together in terms of what it is that God wants to accomplish here, because He has some goals for us, and we need to work diligently to accomplish those goals. And as we build camaraderie as men in the Lord, it allows us to move ahead in confidence, serving God together. So, uh, gentlemen, we hope that you'll come on out uh, February 8th for our next uh, men's prayer breakfast. Turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 24. We're going to take a look today in Genesis 24 spend a little bit of time in Ephesians 4, a passage that I consider to be parallel to some of Genesis and parallel to a little bit of Hebrews 12. Now, if you were here last week, Pastor Keith took us into Hebrews 12, uh, first portion of the chapter, tremendous message, and the reminder to us was we need to look unto Jesus. Now, he's going to be finishing up uh, some of his uh, planned message on Hebrews 12 when he's with us again. So we'll look forward to that. But I asked him if I would not be stealing any thunder to slip something in at the end of Hebrews 12 uh, because of the message that I was going to be preaching today. And he said, that is not a problem. Now, there's a gracious pastor. Appreciate that. I would have done it anyway. No, I, I wouldn't have. But I didn't know how far he was going to travel in Hebrews 12. So we're going to look at uh, Genesis 24. We're going to look at Hebrews 12, Ephesians 4. If you want to see some of the passages that I'll be alluding to or reading, and you want those in front of your eyes to make sure I haven't created it or made it up, and you ought to care about that, uh, take a look at some of, those, um, some of those passages with me. Now, I have titled the message that the Lord's laid on my heart today simply this. No other way. No other way. We find in Genesis chapter 24 the beginning of a relatively lengthy story, and there are a few of those in Genesis. I love the stories of Genesis, and we can learn an awful lot from them. But in this lengthy story, Genesis 24 starts us off with a storybook romance. Now, like most fellas, I probably enjoy the shoot 'em up, uh, you know, race, race car type of flick more than the romance. But my wife has drawn me in mildly to this territory. I think there's room for the romance story. So we'll flip back and forth. She'll knit and do other things while the fast and furious stuff is on. And I go ahead and enjoy. Well, I work my way through the romance at times. But actually, uh, romance begins with God, in case you're wondering. So for those of you on the fellow side who maybe struggle with romance a bit, God loved us and sent his son. So romance begins long before any of us thought of it, and it's certainly not of human invention. 
And when God talks about romance, it's a whole lot better and a whole lot uh, more significant than the romance that you and I might come up with. And it is certainly far better than whatever Hollywood comes up with in terms of ruining the whole uh, romance concept. So we're going to look at a storybook romance, but I'm sad to say that if we're going to pay attention to the context of God's word, the romance doesn't continue like it should. And there's a lesson for us there. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we uh, begin this message, and I'm going to ask that you, like I, just ask God to help us to really grab a hold of why a romance became something not so much and what were some of the reasons why that took place. Lord, thank you that we can dive into your word on a regular basis. Thank you for a church family who wants to dig into the word. Thank you for people who care about truth. And Lord, sometimes truth is warm and wonderful, and we love it, and sometimes it doesn't just tramp on our toes. It beats us uh, even more than that, and yet we need it. And I pray, Father, that we will embrace truth regardless of whether it's warm or whether it's difficult and painful at times. Because truth is something that you want us to pay attention to, and you would love for it to transform our lives. Because you've called upon us not to simply be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word as well. So we ask for your Holy Spirit's work. I pray that you'll work in those who know Christ, who are here today, and love your word. I pray that you'll work in the lives of those who may know Christ, but are struggling with some things. And I pray that you'll work in the hearts of some who may not have a connection to God or Christ. And yet in your sovereign will. You've placed them here today. Thank you for that, Lord. Allow God to do a tremendous work in our lives as we look into your word together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 24 starts the story. It's actually a lengthy enough story that I'll not read it all because we would have to read chapters together, not even just a single chapter. But I'd like to go ahead and start in this story of Isaac and Rebekah, a relatively familiar story for those of you who have maybe studied the word at times. Uh, we're talking about Abraham's son, the one that he prayed for, the one that if you hearken back to Genesis 22, uh, Abraham was told by God, I want you to offer this son on uh, the mount. I want you to offer him freely. And Abraham was ready to do that. And then what did God do? He provided a lamb instead. And so Abraham's faith grew. I believe Isaac's faith certainly must have grown in the midst of that. But in Genesis 24, we come to that time where Abraham is looking forward to his son having the wife that God uh, wants for him in his life. And if we're talking about uh, uh, uniqueness to this story in terms of how it worked culturally, try to imagine it, fellas and gals who are of marrying age but not quite there yet. Mom and dad make a decision to send out a servant and go look for a wife for Isaac. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, aren't you ready to commit to that, singles? <laughs> that is so scary, isn't it? <laughs> but Isaac uh, followed through on the plan. And by the way, by virtue of the fact that it was a romance at the beginning, it tells me that he committed and submitted himself to that. 
So this started off as a really good story. And boy, I love Genesis 24 at the beginning, before we get to the portion that we're going to spend time on, because when the servant goes out looking for the wife, he wants to make sure he's doing a good job. And I love that passage in Genesis 24 where the servant said, because I was in the way that God wanted me to be in, God led me. Boy, that's powerful. God led him to the right person at the right time in the right place of all of the women in the world at that time. Wonderful story. Now take a look with me at verse 50 of chapter 24 to bring us into the context here. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out the jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, "'Send me away to my master.'" Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to her, to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. This servant is ready to roll. I've accomplished the job that Abraham has called me to do, and I want to get Rebecca back to Isaac. Now jump down to the end of that chapter. Verse 61, then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahalaroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lift up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lift up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. Now listen to the next phrase. This is where the romance is clear. And he loved her. He loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So God's working in Isaac's life. He's a happy man. God's brought to me the individual that I need. And Rebecca seems to be on board with this. There's, there's my guy. Chapter 25, Abraham's death ultimately takes place. And as the story continues, Isaac and Rebecca pray for children. There is an initial period of barrenness that they struggle with, like we see a number of times in the scriptures with uh, families who were interested in having children. God ultimately allows Rebecca to conceive, and she has inside of her two babies, not just one. Double the blessing from God. So if you will, take a look at Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 21. In verse 21, it says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That's God speaking to them. Pretty specific details. 
When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Those were the good old days, fellas. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Now listen to what takes place at the end of verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I want to suggest to you, based on that passage, that a root begins to grow in this family and the biblical evidence of that starts right here in this verse. A root begins to grow. And we're going to dig in the word together, but let me share with you something today. There are some things you and I may need to dig up. And I'm going to share that with you because I believe that unless we are willing to dig up some of the roots that end up growing in our hearts and in our lives, in our families, in our relationships, it's going to keep us from doing and accomplishing what it is that God has for our families. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, we shouldn't say more than the scripture says. I don't believe that I could interpret Isaac loved Esau to mean that Isaac hated Jacob. I don't think we could say that. But I think it's pretty clear that there's some competitive spirit going on between a husband and wife in some sense of the word, and we know that there was going to be one between the two sons. So we're going to talk a little bit about this story, because God sheds an awful lot of light on what's going on in this family's life, and I'm going to ask you to take a hard look inside your heart and in the hearts and lives of your family members. And whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you're old or whether you're young, the root that started in this family's life is a root that could be growing inside of you and me, and we must consider what God says about this and learn to dig up some roots that maybe have grown beyond what they ought to. So the boys grew up. Esau was a hunter, seldom focusing on life's priorities. He loved the outdoors and enjoyed bringing the meat home. We already know that his dad loved that. Jacob, in some measure, grows up, and the primary words that the scripture uses to describe Jacob is that he's a deceiver, he's a conniver. Now, that's not really a great reputation. And keep in mind, the conniver, the deceiver, is the one that in prophecy, God has already said he's going to be the head as it relates to these two brothers. Now, I don't believe that's God's way of saying, I love conniving, I love deceiving, and I am placing my stamp of approval on it. No, no. God makes it very clear in his word that he does not favor conniving and deceiving, but God had a plan for these individuals' lives, and sometimes God's plan is in spite of the fact that you and I could mess it up or attempt to mess it up. The truth is when God has a plan for you or me, we really can't mess it up as it relates to the sovereignty of power of God. So there's some interesting insights that we might learn regarding Esau and Jacob as it relates to their backgrounds. Now, here are the things that we know to be true. And this all takes place through chapter 25, 26, 27. Uh, so take a chance or take some time to read through each of the chapters and be reminded of the details of the story. But I want to move uh, beyond uh, the, the reading of the chapters to finding out what this root is that seems to be growing in this family. 
we know at some point that Esau gives up his birthright for a meal of tasty stew. That's Genesis 25, verses 30 to 34. If you remember the story, the hunter is out hunting, comes home literally famished, and Jacob has produced a wonderful stew. It must have smelled fantastic. It probably tasted just as good. And when Esau comes in, he is so hungry that he is willing to take the double portion that an elder son would have and give it up for a good bowl of stew. Now, there's some real investment, isn't it? I am so hungry. I will give you all the extra that comes to me as the oldest son. When Esau gave up his birthright, it is something he did deliberately. He made the decision. No one really tricked him into it. And we don't know all the details of what conversation took place, but we know enough from the Hebrews 12 passage and from the Genesis passage to know this. He despised his birthright. The word's very, very powerful in the scriptures. He's the one who said, it ain't worth it, give me something to eat. I want you to think about that as it relates to some applications for our own lives. Is it possible that there are some eternal things or some things that are worth a tremendous amount that you and I are willing to give up for a mess of pottage, like the good old King James says? For a mess of pottage, for one single meal. I think we need to think about what we are giving up. Because sometimes we're giving up something that is far more valuable than whatever it is that we're getting. And Esau classically is an individual who did that. Not only does he give up his birthright, but as time goes on, we find it in Genesis chapter 26, in verse 34 and 35, Esau decides to give up his purity and testimony. He's born into a particular family. He is born into a family that cares about who their children marry. God has laid down some standards for Abraham's family based on promises that are made and what he wants Abraham and Isaac and his children to do. And Esau chooses to marry two Hittite wives. Now, that's not as well known in the story. We know a lot about the stew, and we know a lot about later on the blessing, but people kind of forget about that. Why do I think it's significant? Because Hebrews share some things with us in insight to who Esau is, and this idea of the Hittite wives comes out again as it relates to Hebrews also. Note verse 35 of chapter 26. These two women who were married to their son Esau were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now's where I introduce the word that we're going to look at in Hebrews 12 that is extremely important. We'll find it in Ephesians 4 as well. The word is bitterness. The root word, Genesis chapter 26 and verse 35, mar, shows up in the Old Testament numerous times, and a version of it in New Testament, even though we're not talking about Hebrew in this case. We find this root over and over again. Now, there are different implications in different people's lives based on the bitterness that is being spoken of, but when the Bible says, these women were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah, we see the seed of this idea of bitterness being sown. Esau made choices, and if you look carefully at Genesis, Esau married these women, probably not because God led him to them, but he wanted to be a grief to his family. Isn't that incredible? 
In other words, in order to say what I'm thinking about whatever it was that he didn't care for that was going on in the family, I'm going to marry the individuals that I know will cause my mom and dad the worst grief. Oh, how could anybody do that? They could, they could ruin their own life by making a poor choice like that. Yes, they could. But as my wise mother used to say, sometimes people cut off their nose despite their face. Doesn't that really let you know when I was born? Because I don't hear that much anymore. But what does it mean to cut off your nose despite your face? It's when you're doing something supposedly to accomplish something to get at somebody else. But the bottom line is it hurts you just as bad or worse than the individuals you're trying to hurt. So Esau gives up his purity and his testimony. He is a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah, and these wives are as well. Rebekah and Jacob then scheme to rob Esau later on of the blessing. This takes place over the course of, the, of chapter 27. One could say, well, God already said that Jacob was going to be the head honcho as far as these two boys were concerned, so I guess Rebekah was right. Listen to this. Rebekah chose the proper son in some sense of the word. And by the way, these two parents should not have been choosing between their children. So moms and dads, listen to it. It's easy for us to have favorites for whatever the reason, like the one who's most like us or the one who seems to be most obedient or whatever, but it's not going to play out well in the home. But when Rebecca made the choice to support Jacob, she was not so much saying, I care about the things of God, and I'm going to be the godly parent here. She was trying to make God's plan come to pass her own way and in her time and that's not the way you do it. Now, we know Dad had a problem, too. Because Dad wanted the firstborn son to get his just dues. And a firstborn son can be really important to Dad. I get that. But ultimately, both Isaac and Rebekah made some terrible choices that ended up dividing their family and ruining the romance in their home. Isaac bestows the blessing. You find this in Genesis 27, verses 24 to 29. In the verses prior to verse 24, you'll find that when Isaac finally decided that he was going to give the blessing to his favored son, that he did it, he intended to do it without his wife and his other son knowing. But Rebecca heard what he was saying. And so once Isaac sent his son out to go ahead and bring something back to feed him and then to be able to offer the blessing to his son. The scheming begins between mom and Jacob. And in the scheme that takes place, if you remember the story, Jacob is even wise enough to realize that even though dad's eyesight is going, dad knows that Esau's the hairy guy and dad knows that I'm not the hairy guy. And if dad feels my arms, He's going to know that I'm not who I say I am. So they even put some stuff on his arms to make sure that the deception is complete. And ultimately, Isaac gives the blessing to the son that God intended. But it all happened because of Isaac and Rebekah's confrontations with one another and because of two boys who were willing to do whatever they could to be competitive in each other's lives. Now, this Hebrew word mar that I have mentioned 
shows up again in Genesis 27. If you have your Bibles there, take a look at verse 34. Genesis chapter 27 and verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. There it is. That's that mar that you find so often in the scriptures. And he said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. Notice the lie. Did he cheat him the first time? No, he despised his blessing. But he's now even accusing his brother of something that's not even accurate. And this is one of the evidences that something bitter is inside of us. We begin to misinterpret the stuff that even is right in front of our eyeballs. And we make sure we interpret it to our own advantage. The Hebrew word mar shows up numerous times in Scripture. We'll not turn to these, but I want to mention it so that you understand how frequently we find it in Scripture. I believe it is one of the ways that God says, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, don't forget this. We find in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that Hannah, not having a child, ends up with initial bitter cries because of the fact that she didn't have a child. I am not saying that Hannah was a bitter woman. Because ultimately, God worked in her life, and she served God faithfully. She gave her son back to the Lord as she had promised. And so you can have a bitter moment and it not be planted deeply in us. And I believe Hannah would be a great study of an individual who handled potential bitterness the correct way. 1 Samuel chapter 15, it doesn't end so well here. Not all of the individuals are being killed at the end of the spoils and the king in 1 Samuel 15 has been told, Saul, you must make sure that these individuals are annihilated because they will be a corrupter to your kingdom and to your family. But Agag is spared. And Agag is really happy about being spared because he was one of the ones that had been taken over at this point in time. But when Samuel finds out, that Saul is disobedient. Samuel says, if you're not going to obey God, I will. Agag dies there that day. And the word that is used when Agag realizes, I think I'm going to make it through this, but then Samuel says, no, you're not. Bitter cry. Oh, no. Oh, no, I can't believe this. And then Agag is gone. There is evidence in 1 Samuel 22 <clears throat> of a bitterness of soul based on those who were discontent who were coming David's direction. Fascinating passages there. Uh, the kingdom followers that David had initially were the people who were having financial troubles, had all kinds of problems with the present king in place, and a bunch of people who were bitter of soul. Now there is a kingdom worth having. It didn't start off real well. <clears throat> now God ultimately began to bless in some pretty specific ways. And that's good, but there's some bitterness in the people that David was leading at that time. Esther chapter 4, as it relates to the story of Mordecai and Haman, there's an edict to kill the Jews. And as a result of the persecution and the death that was going to come, you see the evidence of the bitter cry once again. Oh no, Jewish people are going to be killed. Job chapter 7, chapter 10, Isaiah 38, suffering and hardship coming into people's lives can be a source of bitterness. Hostile situations, Psalm 64, disillusionment, Ezekiel 27, Zephaniah chapter 1, 
future. The judgment of God is going to result for some people in a day of the Lord where there is a bitter cry. Oh no, God really exists. Oh no, God really is holy. Oh no. You don't want to be on that side when Zephaniah 1 is fulfilled. Because judgment, God says, will come. So Esau is a classic example in Scripture of one who I believe was destroyed by bitterness. And what we learn about Esau in the New Testament is a confirmation that this individual is being used by God to say, if you want to see what a root of bitterness looks like, you look at this guy. That's not really the way you want to be remembered in the Scriptures, is it? So let's talk a little bit about a diagnosis of bitterness, because <clears throat> it's not easy to diagnose. I believe Hebrews 12 talks about that, so if you would like to turn to your New Testament now, Hebrews 12. We want to find this man Esau mentioned here in these verses. Take a look. At verse 12, we'll back up from uh, verse 15 where we first see mention of Esau. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau was a bitter man, and I believe we can take it so far as to say that he had a bitter mom, he had a bitter dad, and for a period of time, a bitter brother as well. Now, we know some things about the story later on to know that there was a point when some of these individuals reconciled. There's hope in this uh, story as a result of that. Not everyone who ends up with bitterness in their soul ever reconciles. There are people who come to the end of their lives as dark and bitter individuals with brokenness between them and everyone else. And it is a sad story every time it takes place. And it ought not to represent anyone who's a believer in Jesus. <clears throat> now what about this diagnosis of bitterness? It is called a root in Hebrews 12, 15. One of the reasons why a root is not necessarily easy to identify is because it's below the surface. So it can take time for roots that exist to begin to exhibit the fruit that says, yeah, there really is a root here that's a problem. So it may or may not be obvious initially. I would like to suggest to you that diagnosing bitterness in someone else probably a bit easier than diagnosing it in oneself because we infamously do not wish to look at us and to find out what part we play as it relates to whatever the situations and circumstances are in our lives but boy do we notice it when it's going on for somebody else I think we should learn a lesson there about what God calls us to as it relates to dealing with some of these things
let's learn to look inside first before we ever begin to look outside. But for those in bitter relationships and with bitter connections, you will find that your communication is constantly accusational, pointing the finger. It's you, and if you were doing what you were supposed to be doing, then I'd be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's not biblical. I wish I could say I never did that, but I've struggled with that too. Illustrated in Genesis chapter 27 is the naivety that can come as it relates to the depth of bitterness and the root that exists. Because in Genesis 27, starting in verse 28 and going to verse 46, I'll not read the whole passage, but listen to what takes place. Once this business of the blessing being lost happens, Esau is an angry man. He is so angry that he is willing to do what to his brother? He's willing to kill him. He says it. I'm going to kill my brother. The wise mother steps in. Rebecca says, he'll get over it. Just give it some time. The idea that time heals all wounds from some human perspective is not at all accurate, by the way, because it doesn't. Now, I believe God, with the work of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God, can allow an awful lot of healing, and we need to believe that, but it doesn't always happen because we don't always appropriate the things God gives us in order for that to take place. God wants us to learn to appropriate His grace when it comes to the difficult situations in our lives. Basically, Rebecca says this, in a few days, he's going to forget. Now, even if she was off by just days or weeks or months, that would be one thing. But what takes place in this story is years of brokenness. So we don't always calculate well as it relates to the depth of the root of bitterness. Rebecca was basically saying, there is no root in your brother. Don't worry about it because ultimately he's going to get over this and then everything's going to be just fine and it wasn't. So a personal application for each of us. Have you been deceived? Have you been mistreated? Have you been hated? Have you been taken advantage of? Are you reaping what you sowed? Have you been physically, emotionally, spiritually harmed? You know, most of us are going to have to say yes to that. Whether it's happening right now or whether it happened in the past or whether it's going to happen in the future, most of us would have to say, yeah, that's us. So what's the point? For all of the different sufferings and issues and things that come at you that you find painful, it is possible that this would lead to a bitter root in you. That is why when we get to Hebrews, it says, look diligently. Look diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. The word trouble there, interesting word, annoys you, harasses you. It goes from anything that's simple and basic that could drive you nuts to the kinds of things that probably could harm you in a deep way. Be aware of the fact that the root of bitterness is something that may be difficult to diagnose, 
And most of us have had the kinds of things in our lives that could lead to bitterness. The question is this, has it for you? Has it for me? That's a good question to ask based on what God shares with us in his word. So let's talk about the diligence that's needed to properly identify it. Hebrews 12, 15, I just quoted it, looking diligently lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. The phrase looking diligently literally means to remain focused attentively. Why is God telling us to focus attentively on this idea? Because it's easy to miss it. It's easy to say it's everybody else's problem. Or it's easy to say, yeah, I got problems. Yeah, I'm dealing with some things. But it's because of that, because of them, because of him, because of her. So we need to look diligently so that the root of bitterness doesn't take over. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Because Ephesians 4... allows us to understand the word being used, not just in the New Testament, but in these Old Testament passages. And it allows us to come to grips with the negative side of bitterness and how we can properly identify it. And since we have to look diligently, I'm going to encourage you that the diligent looking that you do needs to start with this book as you look inside of you. Compare what's going on in your mind and in your heart with the truth of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Man, I love the details that God gives us. Because those six words that are just listed here, they don't all mean the same thing. Which means if I really want to look diligently, I've got to understand what these words mean because bitterness starts off the list. And I will say, based on the linguistics here, bitterness is the big word in the passage. That doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes there are equivalent ideas in passages. Bitterness is the big word, and the next five words are words that are descriptive and allow us to understand the manifestation of the big word. So let's do a little bit of digging as it relates to Ephesians chapter 4. If bitterness is supposed to be put away from me, and God says, in order to understand what that means, put some wrath away from you, put some anger away from you, put some clamor away from you, put some evil speaking away from you, put some malice away from you. God really lays it out. So do a little internal look. Because this isn't about, well, yeah, mom's got this problem. Oh, yeah, dad's got this. No doubt about it. Oh, my spouse. Oh, incredible how much this shows up in my spouse. Oh, my children, my teens. <laughs> it's so easy for us to do that. Stop thinking about everybody else whose life will seem to align with these words and just think about you. That's it. Don't go any further. See what God can do when you take a look inside. And I'm speaking to myself again. I'm letting you know that because every time I preach the message, I'm thinking to myself, who am I to say this? That's what goes through my head. That's the, that's the demonic battle I'm dealing with because I get to be the one to say it out loud in front of you. Who am I to say this? What is wrath? The word is thumas. 
It means passion. It is impetuousness. It may be temporary, but it can be something that is ongoing. I would say that wrath is the boiling over of you. It's the boiling over. People see it. They experience it. It's not pleasant. Well, then what is anger? Because we kind of think anger, wrath, it's all the same stuff. No, it's not. Anger is a different word. Orge, in the original language, it is what is down inside. It is the seething. It is the boiling. But it's not the boiling over. So is it possible for a person to have anger and for wrath to have not manifested itself yet? Yes. But let me tell you something about anger. If it's in you and it's boiling, eventually it boils over. So God says, get rid of all bitterness. And if you don't understand exactly what I'm talking about, get rid of your boiling over wrath. Get rid of your boiling inside anger. Get rid of your clamor. Now, we don't use that one as much in our present-day English, but that's the outcry. That's the shouting. That is the strife. That is the argumentation. That is the boisterousness. That is the slam doors, the stomping of the feet, the nasty words coming out of one's mouth. God says, get rid of it. Fourth one, evil speaking. The word slander probably shows up in some of your translations there. Original word, blasphemia. We're not supposed to blaspheme God, but we're also not supposed to gossip and get ourselves involved in innuendo and slander as it relates to the people we say we love that we live with or that are part of our family or the people we work with or any of the other people that we come in contact with. Malice. It's depraved behavior. It is an intention to harm. So there's motivation behind this word. It can be the general word for wickedness, but as it relates to this particular passage, malice is the stuff that's done with the intention of getting some revenge from the person you are bitter with. And some of you aren't very subtle, and it's real obvious. And some of you know how to hide it. But God knows your heart. It's wrong either way. So just because somebody can't point the finger and say, I know you did that on purpose, God knows. So what does God tell us to do about that? Get rid of it. Put it away from you. Ephesians 4 is so abundantly clear and it sheds a little bit of light on this issue of bitterness, even though a root can be difficult to interpret and understand and to diagnose. There are some very specific things that God tells us can be done to rid ourselves of it. So if you have it and it continues there and you don't know how to get rid of it, it's because you're not reading the book or believing the book or putting the book into practice. It's not because God can't give you help with that. Does that make sense? Genesis chapter 28, verses 8 and 9. Esau deliberately, maliciously hurt his father with his immoral choices. It's a reminder of the malice that I believe was there inside of Esau's heart as it relates to the story we're using as the foundation for understanding this passage. Now let's get back to Ephesians 4.31 briefly. 
I don't want to oversimplify what is difficult because if it was easy for us to get rid of a root of bitterness, then there wouldn't be so many people that have one. But it is simple in the sense that God makes it very clear. Put these five things away. And in fact, put these six things away. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice, put them away. There is not a person sitting in this room to whom that command does not apply. So we can hear from the Lord and do something about it. Or we can say, it's not a big deal. Let me share with you, looking further into the passage, why it is a big deal if we choose not to deal with it. Because not only do we need diligence to figure out the root of bitterness and to understand it, but there is a common descent into bitterness that it would be good for us to identify. I love the Genesis passage because we can watch the story and we can see the descent of a family and of its individuals into this territory. And I believe the application needs to be clear. A lot of families, a lot of individuals have followed the descent. Check this out. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, using the phrase looking diligently once again, it applies to more than one word in the passage. We should look diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up troubles us, but we should look diligently, lest anyone fail of the grace of God. This becomes one of the most powerful pieces of information in regards to our understanding of bitterness, folks. You see, it is possible, if we are not looking diligently, that you and I will fail of the grace of God. Now, there's a bunch of folks sitting in front of me, and you love the grace of God, don't you? I do, too. The grace of God is a phenomenal truth. It is a wonderful reality. It is a blessing for us. We ought to be thrilled that God offers it to us. It is possible for God to provide all of the grace necessary for every single thing in our lives and for you and I not to appropriate his grace. So how in the world do I appropriate the grace of God? Because it doesn't matter if we hear all this stuff and we even understand it and we can even respond to the Sunday school quiz question if we haven't learned how to appropriate it. So let's redefine bitterness and take not just the Ephesians 4 manifestations, which are a great negative description so that we can identify it if it might exist in our lives, and let's forget about all the people around us who have it because they may or may not be struggling with this, but that's not our business. That's God's business. So let's look inside, but what is the positive side of the definition of bitterness? Bitterness is a failure to appropriate God's grace to the circumstances in our lives. I'll say it again. Bitterness is a failure to appropriate God's grace to the circumstances in our lives. Our stories are not identical. As a result, we're going to have to make some really personal applications if we want God to do a work in our lives because our stories are not the same. We can spend all our time looking at everybody else's story and saying, theirs is better, it's not fair, or theirs is worse. Boy, I'm sure that, glad that's not me. We can spend all our time doing that. 
or we can find out how God wants us to appropriate grace in our lives. And then as God begins the work of digging up a root inside of you, you get a chance to pass some of that on to your spouse, to pass some of that on to your kids, to pass some of that on to your teens, to pass some of that on to your co-workers. Isn't that the way Christianity is supposed to be? So God's calling us to something. And we need to be willing to follow through. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Another classic illustration as it relates to this principle. The word bitterness does not show up here. I believe it's a parallel passage because we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that the apostle Paul has a thorn in the flesh. It is something that has nagged at him. It has been bruising to him. He has struggled with it. And he goes to God. Not one prayer, two prayers, three prayers. That's not what I see here. He goes to God with a season of prayer. It may have lasted weeks or months of time. We don't know how long it was. And he poured out his heart before God. And he said, God, this hurts. I don't want it anymore. I need to see this changed. Please change it. God says no. Second season of prayer takes place. God, I don't want to experience this health issue. I don't want to deal with this financial mess. I don't want the brokenness in my relationship as it presently exists. I'm telling you, I need it to be changed. And God says, no. Do you mean the God of the universe, the one that you preachers are always saying, loves everybody? You're saying sometimes he knows there's a problem and he knows it hurts and he knows we want to get rid of it. And he says, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. And he still loves you. He still does. Now that might be hard to understand, but boy is it powerful once we get to the point where we grab a hold of that. Because it changes the way we deal with the painfulness in our lives. Paul prays three different times, seasons of prayer, And in the final analysis, God speaks to him. Hear God's words to Paul here. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know what I think? I think we don't glory in our infirmities as we should. And I think the power of Christ doesn't rest on us like it should. Am I going too far? Have I mistranslated the scripture? No, I've simply repeated it to you in real English. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. So what's the key phrase here? My grace is sufficient. So we'll talk about the quantity of the grace of God. I cannot measure it for you. I do not have an illustration so phenomenal that it will make perfect sense. There is enough of the grace of God for every one of you, for every one of your issues, for every one of my issues, for every one of the issues of the people who are outside of this building, for every one of the people who live in our town and in our state and in our nation and in our world. And in fact, there's more than that. There you go. That's all I've got. But that means God's allowed to say, my grace 
is sufficient. So when God's grace doesn't seem like enough, is the quantity the problem? No. It's our willingness to believe God and our faithfulness to appropriate his grace. Wow. I mean, I don't mind tramping on your toes, but I hate it when I tramp on mine. Let's talk for a moment about some of the specifics of the descent in Esau's life, and then we'll kind of wrap things up as we look at what we can do about bitterness if the root is there and we haven't yet resolved it. Esau's family descended into bitterness. Here are the things that I can observe. I'll go through them rapidly, but please take a look at Genesis 24, 25, 26, 27, and you'll see the evidence of these things. There is a reaction on Esau's part to a generation prior to him. It is possible for bitterness to take place in the lives of young people or teens or young adults because of what they perceive or what actually took place based on mom and dad and the generation before them. It could be a national thing. It could be a family thing. But he reacted inappropriately to the generation prior, and as a result of that, as he looked at the one-time storybook romance between mom and dad, but if you asked Esau while he was growing up. Well, is it still a storybook romance? No, not even close. Esau rejected a godly plan for his life. Isaac and Rebekah knew God's plan. Isaac rejected God's plan for whatever his reasons were. Rebekah rejected God's plan, at least in terms of the timing of it, because she wanted to make it happen before it was time. So Rebecca manipulated, Isaac rejected, Esau and Jacob both followed one of their parents. And this is a tough one, Mom and Dad, but listen to this. Because I believe that God wants us as parents in the lives of our adult children or the young children that are growing up in our homes. He wants us to evaluate our part. And we do have a part, don't we? So let's not exclude our responsibility. But at some point in time, God holds the generation after us responsible for their attitudes, for their words, for their actions, for their habits, and God will hold them accountable. And whether they follow your good lead or not, and you have both bad lead and good lead because you're human, but whether they follow your good lead or not, God's going to step into the lives of that new generation. So to the young generation that may have had sinful influences from mom and dad in other places. I speak to you. Don't reject a godly plan just because mom and dad weren't perfect or other individuals aren't perfect. Don't do it. It's not to your advantage. And God wants to use you in some incredible ways. It is amazing to me how easily our plans try to rule over God's plans in our lives. I don't know why we do it as easily as we do it, but it's like, I know God's leading me to do this, and I know God doesn't want this, but I don't care. It's a rejection of a godly plan. Third thing that we see in Esau, he was not rising above the godless provokers in his life. So here's where I'm taking the other side in some sense of the word. Were Isaac and Rebekah, based on their poor testimonies, provoking their children? Yes, they were. And that's sin, Mom and Dad. That's sin. But at some point in time, you and I have to make a decision to rise above the provokers in our lives. 
And most often, bitterness moves deeper and deeper when we don't rise above the provoking, but we continue to add to it by our own way of communicating. So we need to learn how to rise above the godless provokers that may exist. And they might not just be in your home. Praise the Lord if they're not. But you might find some in the workplace, and you might find some in politics, and you might find some in some of the other categories. And it can really be a struggle when you feel like you're constantly being provoked by a bunch of fools. It can drive you crazy. Now, lest we look at Isaac and Rebecca and say, total dysfunction, total dysfunction, wow. Oh, total dysfunction. (laughs) This is what goes through my mind. I'm not just pointing the finger at Isaac and Rebecca. There's a lot of dysfunction in us, but here's what we could do. Well, they were dysfunctional, and we're dysfunctional. I guess that's normal. No, it's not. Because God wants us to live better than that. So we're not told that they're a dysfunctional family so that we can all be like them. We're told they're a dysfunctional family so that we don't choose to be like them. What else in regards to Esau? There was a sensuous refusal of godly priority. He lost the birthright. He married the wrong wrong wives. He lost the blessing, and then he gets angry at everybody for not making it up for him. He was constantly allowing his fleshiness to take over. And it's all too true for us when we have some of this bitter condition inside of us. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul in the New Testament says, But I keep under my body, I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You don't find the word real often in the scriptures. So that kind of stands out to me. Castaway, you find it there in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Gilligan and the gang, you find it right there. And the reason that makes me laugh is because sometimes I wonder if we don't all go to Gilligan's Island Baptist Church. Oh no, it's Harvest Baptist by name. But if we're individuals who are a bunch of castaways because we've allowed certain things to take over that God doesn't want, then we might as well call it Gilligan's Island Baptist. I mean, people would at least show up the first time just to see what's going on. (laughs) You know what the theme song would have to be. Brian, do you know that one? (laughs) All right. Bitterness defiles. Hebrews 12, 15, moving a little bit further in that part of the verse. Lest any root of bitterness trouble you, and thereby... Many be defiled. Here's what you cannot calculate. If there's bitterness in you, even though God clarifies what you should do in order to take care of it, you cannot keep it in you. I will just keep it in me. I want to nurture this baby like a warm cup of coffee. I'm going to hold on to it because in some ways the coffee might be bitter, but it's it's warming me up but I'm not going to let it impact anybody else. You can't do it. You can't do it because ultimately God says it can't be done. If there's bitterness in you, it's going to boil over and it's going to impact the people that you say you care about. And as they get bitter with you, because that's often what takes place, 
we get to the point where we are simply the castaway that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians? How did this impact Esau? His relationships were ruined. His holiness was harmed. His faith faltered. His lust continued to grow. His discernment disintegrated. These are all of the things that took place in Esau's life based on the fact that he refused to deal with a bad root. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. The verses here are so incredibly lined up with the story in Genesis and with the things that God says that he wants in our life. Now I want to jump back in Hebrews 12 to a couple of the verses that lead up to this discussion of uh, the, the life of Esau. Take a look at verse 12. This is where we began reading this morning. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. This is the context of Hebrews 12. We ought to consider the context in the surrounding area as we look at Esau. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Are you striving? There's labor to this. It takes work. It takes intentionality. Are you striving for peace with everyone? Are you striving, verse 14, for holiness? The word strive is inextricably connected to the word holiness as well. You must strive for peace, but God wants you to strive for holiness. Are you diligently working in the direction of becoming more like Christ, more like God? It takes work. It takes labor. It doesn't happen by sitting down and hoping that it will take place. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's an important phrase. Why? Because Esau's faith faltered. When our faith falters, it's because we don't see God anymore. It's because we don't see Jesus, even though we know he exists. Jump back to Hebrews chapter 12. Your pastor preached it to us. Our pastor said, Hebrews 12, 1, looking unto who? Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. So when we look at Esau, the relationships were ruined, the holiness is harmed, the faith falters, the lust is enlarged. In the verses that precede his name being used in Hebrews 12, we literally find it laid out, some of the things that we need to aim for. So not only is a bitter root something that we must be attentive to and be digging it out, but there are some positive things that when we place them in our lives, it is less likely for a bitter root to stay. God lays it out for us. It's not too hard to do, but our flesh is often too strong to be willing to place ourselves under God as it relates to this. So I'm going to close with these words. What do I do about a bitter root in me? Dig it up. Dig it up. 
I'm not saying it's not a big root. I'm not saying you might have to dig deeper and longer. And you may have to go further than you thought to get it out of there. But it is your responsibility and mine to do the digging on the stuff that's inside of us with God's help. I am not saying this isn't a God thing. I don't think you can do it without God. I'm saying that God isn't going to do it unless you are willing to be obedient to the plain and simple stuff that he says in his word. So if he says dig, then we need to get digging. And then he gives us the power and the strength to accomplish whatever is needed. Does it make sense? Boy, it's powerful stuff. It'll make a difference on whether or not you and I, as part of Harvest Baptist, are used in incredible ways to accomplish incredible things in the lives of needy people, or whether we'll sit back nurturing our own little sins and our own little hurts and accomplishing little or nothing for the glory of God. And I think it's pretty clear what God would have us do. He doesn't want us to be in the wrong place. I don't have time to discuss it now, but I'm challenging you to read the final portion of Hebrews chapter 12 because there are some mountains that are talked about. You have to have a little bit of a geography understanding. I've alluded to these before in another message that I preached earlier last year, but it's really important as the application to bitterness as well. Mount Sinai is what starts off here. It's not the place we need to be if we're going to resolve the root of bitterness. Mount Sinai was the place of what? It was the place of law. Law, by the way, it's not bad. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. God didn't take that back. So we have to understand that relationship is the most important thing while continuing to recognize that God's laws were intended for a purpose. We can't throw the law out because we don't prefer it. But we ought not to be living law because that's not relationship. We have to keep these things in balance. So the wrong place is Mount Sinai. What's the right place as far as Hebrews 12 is concerned? It's Mount Zion. It's that place of worship. We've talked about it before. Mount Zion is the place of worship. It's the center of true worship. But here's what I want to tell you. It doesn't matter if you know the words to the song. And it doesn't matter if you can even find a way to put a smile on your face, even if you're not feeling it. That doesn't make it worship. Real worship takes place when we head to Zion. Hearts joyful at what God is doing or what God wants to do or what we believe God is planning to do in our lives and we pour our souls out before God in the midst of the worship. And in that place, Mount Zion, you're going to find it easier to deal with your root of bitterness. There's a mount that's not mentioned in Hebrews 12 and I mention it for those of you who may come who are not members, who are maybe not attenders, have never accepted Christ as Savior. You may still be in that process of saying, maybe God's out there, maybe he's not, I'm not sure. God is out there, but I don't think he's really involved in my life. If that's where you are and you have not yet accepted Christ as personal Savior, Mount Sinai doesn't mean a whole lot to you, and it won't. And Mount Moriah, or, or, or the uh, Mount Zion, you're not going to be able to get to in your present condition because Mount Zion is a place for believers. So where do you need to go if you don't know Christ yet? Mount Calvary. There are plenty of New Testament passages that talk about that mount. You come to Mount Calvary, the place where Jesus died and shed his blood, not because the Romans killed him, not because the Jews said, go ahead and put him on the cross. He died because his father said, that's the job I'm giving you. And then he rose from the grave saying, I'm more powerful than that. 
And when you put your faith in that man who was a perfect man, whose blood was shed to wipe away your sins, when you trust him alone at Mount Calvary, your sins are washed away. Then we can start talking about Mount Sinai, and then we can start talking about Mount Zion and what that means. But that's in the growing process. So if you're here and you haven't come to Jesus, come to Mount Calvary. We can help you with that today. If you're here as a believer and you've been struggling, you can say, wow, everything that was said there, yeah, some of that's in my life. Maybe it doesn't all have to be there. What if there's just a few pieces of it? Then put it away, because God says put it away. And if you have successfully put it away, because you know you dealt with some of those things in the past, and you've watched how God is taking care of that in your life, praise the Lord for that. Now go serve God faithfully, and go help somebody who's got a root so deep they don't know what to do about it. Because we're supposed to be walking with one another and encouraging one another to serve God faithfully. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for Genesis and the stories. Thank you for Ephesians and the clarifications. Thank you for Hebrews and an illustration of someone, even though it's a difficult and painful story, who has had some of the difficulties in his life that we have in our own. It's pretty easy to find an application, Lord. But we can't just stare at other people's stories and have it make a difference. We need to decide, are we going to do something about this or not? I am pleading with you that folk based on the Holy Spirit's work and the truth of God's word and the limited abilities and even life of a servant who speaks out loud today. I am praying that we will have individuals who will dig up roots, who will help others dig up roots, and then some who may be here today who would love to have God work in their lives, but they need Jesus first. I would ask that you would allow people to respond. And whether they do it publicly in this moment or allow us an opportunity to help them over the course of the week, I pray, Father, that your name will be glorified and we will be unified and we will accomplish more for Christ because of it. I ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.